As I was thinking on Ash Wednesday today, it occurred to me that more often than not, when I see the word sin written, whether it's in print or on a screen, in an article or a post or a comment, it's almost always these days surrounded by quotation marks. And not like the confused quotation marks when someone's trying to emphasize a word, like in Big B in the bathroom where it's like employees must wash hands, but the actual proper use to say so-called. Talking about something they're not quite sure they really believe in. You know, like the moon landing that NASA pulled off, right? You know what I mean? Sin then becomes more of a goofy concept that we're all winking at than anything real. Now, the, the world needs to do this. They, they have only two other options. Either they just acknowledge that they are under the wrath of God and they're okay with it, or repent. And so instead, they try to couch sin in quotes and turn it into something manageable. But I don't know why it is that I'm seeing the church do this these days. That, that I see the church putting the quotes around sin. In fact, I, I was on uh, a, a little exchange a few days ago and someone said this, the lost need your love and mercy, not for you to point out their sin, sin in quotes. And, and when I see something like that, first of all, I think, why is sin in quotes? Hopefully you're emphasizing and you're just doing it wrong. But moreover, I wonder if when the disciples were coming back from that food run and they got back to the, the Samaritan village of Sikar and they saw Jesus sitting there with the woman by Jacob's well. I wonder if any of them thought to say that to him. That this, this lost woman, she, she needs your love and mercy, not for you to point out her sin. I wonder, I mean, it would have been one of the lesser known guys, like maybe Nathaniel, right? Who, who would maybe say, Jesus, look, we've got food. Why don't you give her some of this food? That would at least be helpful rather than pointing out these these transgressions of hers. Or, I mean, obviously she's thirsty or she wouldn't be at the well during the hottest part of the day. Did you even think to be a gentleman and offer to bring up actual water for her rather than asking her all these questions about her life, which undoubtedly are bringing up very negative feelings of guilt for her sin? That's absurd. It's also why you don't hear much about Nathaniel. But we do this ourselves in our minds, if not on paper. We say to ourselves, well, yes, I suppose what I did or thought or said was technically a sin, but it's not one of the big ones. And it wasn't all that bad, right? I mean, yes, I guess technically scripture says boasting is a sin, but the culture says having a really good self-image and, and you know, proclaiming your truth is good, so maybe it's not so bad. Or, or yes, I guess supposedly the, the scriptures are all uh, strict about uh, what I'm doing in my relationship, my girlfriend being fornication, but it's 2019 and we're not Puritans after all. Or yes, I suppose that was a lie, but it was a white lie, right? a lie. It was, it was a cute little deception and nothing more. Lent is a time when we remove the quotation marks from our sin. When we ask God to remove the blinders from our eyes, like he removed the scales from Saul's eyes, so we can clearly see the sins we've been hiding inside the quotation marks. 
the sins we've been rebranding in our minds as personality quirks or harmless indulgences or guilty pleasures, but guilty in like a good way, if that makes sense. Like not, I stand guilty before God, but guilty in quotes. Lent is about getting out of these self-justifying ruts that we can get ourselves into, where if we're not careful, we can sit and spin our wheels, spiritually speaking, for years without making any new progress toward being more like Jesus Christ. When I think about progress, my mind as a Baptist goes right to John Bunyan, perhaps the greatest gift that we as Baptists have given to the world other than the very notion of religious freedom. You're all welcome. John Bunyan wrote a book called The Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, read it this Lent. Every day that you go without reading it is doing yourself a disservice. But it's a story of a guy named Christian, and he's on his way down the King's Highway to the Celestial City, and obviously it's an allegory for the Christian life from salvation all the way to glorification. And along the way, there are some times when he's stopped, and he and his companions are stalled, and they get stuck for a time. They get stuck in a net like Gilligan's Island or something, but they get caught in a net by this guy named Flatterer who catches them off guard, and they have to be rescued. There's a time when they're in the slough of despond, and it takes some time before they can get free. There are individuals who uh, represent spiritual laziness and spiritual pride who Bunyan just comes right out and tells us those things lead to self-inflicted incarceration and a lack of progress on the king's highway. And all this goes to remind us and emphasize what we already know, that sin is not only an affront to a holy God, but a horrible detriment to ourselves. And yet the overwhelming view of sin today, even in the few places where you hear it talked about without eyes rolling, is that it's nothing personal, not that big of a deal, it's manageable. It's perhaps something to cut back on, like how you would cut back on carbs because they're not great for you. To wean yourself off, maybe not all the way, but a bit, as much as possible. But is there anything more personal than betraying our lovely, loving Father? Is there anything more personal than taking a precious gift and throwing it in the trash in front of Him? Than, than denying Christ in our actions and in our words, and in our thoughts? Is there, is there anything more personal than that? I mean, think about how Peter reacted when he denied Jesus. He didn't say, well, oh well, three times, no big deal. No, he wept bitterly. He was, he was broken, brokenhearted. He was despairing. And I can't imagine after that happened, and then Peter was reinstated, and Jesus three times said, do you love me? And he said, you know I do. And he, and he brought him back into the fold. I have a hard time imagining Peter being asked, hey, how's it going today? And he says, oh, great. I only denied him two times, right? I was asked three times, but the second one, when they said, aren't you one of his disciples? I was like, you know what? Yes, I am. Only the first and the third did I say, no, you are mad. And with an oath, deny him. Now, to manage sin, or to cut back on it. These are things that Bunyan railed against in a different book. It's called The Dying Sayings. 
Now, he wrote it several years, like seven years before he died, but he spent so much time in prison for being Baptist that he thought he'd get it out of the way. Guaranteed, Joel Osteen will never have a book called Dying Sayings, nor will he have one that begins with a number of statements about sin. But this is, this is how Bunyan begins. Sin is the great block and bar to our happiness, the procurer of all miseries to man, both here and hereafter. It is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. But if we put finger quotes around it, maybe we can change its very nature quite easily. But that doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work. And if you don't believe that it's not that easy to change the nature of something, ask the Waltz family of Allentown, Pennsylvania. You probably heard about this in the news some years ago. This is a family who lived kind of out in the, in the woods, and they had a pet black bear. It, it grew to 350 pounds, but they got it when it was a cub, and they, they fed it with a bottle, and it was a cute little bear. And, and they knew it was a wild animal, but they knew that it knew them, and it, it liked them, and they thought it was a sweetheart, so they named it Teddy the Bear. And it, and it was a kind of part of the family, right up till the very day that it killed 37-year-old Kellyanne Waltz as she was cleaning its cage. You see, she'd become so familiar and so comfortable with the bear, Teddy, that she walked right in to clean the cage while the, the bear was there. And that set him off, and he began to maul her. And her children and her neighbor's children saw this happening and ran to get help. And another neighbor came and shot the bear while it was on top of her, but it was too late. And I I find it odd that the article that I read about this today ended with these words. Authorities soon discovered that Kelly's husband's license to keep and sell exotic animals had expired. As if having the license would have made sure none of this happened. Listen, if you're born again, your license has expired. Okay? Sinning is now something you, you know this is deadly. You, you know that, that this is, you can't say, oh this, oh, this is sweet. This isn't one of the bad ones. This is, this is a good one. No, no, we can't just cut back or, or try and, you know, well, I don't want to do any carbs. I don't want to commit too many sins. Bunyan, in, in, again, I got two more for you from Bunyan. I'm on a Bunyan kick this week. In, in Dying Sayings, he says something about cutting back on sin. Take heed of giving thyself liberty of committing one sin, for that will lead thee to another till by an ill custom it become natural. Or John Owen, uh, in The Mortification of Sin, says something similar. Do not say this far and no further. If you allow sin one step, it will take another. It is impossible to fix bounds for sin. We have a saying, give someone an inch, they'll take a yard. That's kind of what he's saying with sin. Give it an inch, it'll take a mile. But even if you could limit to one sin... That misses the point of the gravity and the tragedy of sin. That just one sin was enough to bring the curse and change everything. This one sin was enough for death to enter the picture. And now we, sinners, stand subject to death. Romans 6.23, wages of sin is death. Romans 1, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, and malice 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is not something we can try and cut back on. It's cold turkey. And we can't manage it, like walking around looking at sin levels, like somebody with a clipboard, you know, one of these guys from the EPA checking how many parts per billion of lead is in the water or PFAS or any of these horrible things that are slowly killing us, going, eh, just under the limit, so should be okay. That's not how sin works. I kind of think that's not how lead works either, but it's definitely not how sin works. Jesus said, a little leaven leavens the whole the whole lump. And Bunyan had something to say on this as well. No sin against God can be little because it is against the great God of heaven and earth. But if the sinner can find a little God, it may be easy to find little sins. So zero parts per billion. That's what you're telling me, pastor? Uh, I've got to be zero parts per billion because if that's the case, I can kind of tell you how this Lent is going to go. I'm going to mess up and go, oh, leaven the whole thing. Forget it. Maybe we'll try again next year. But that's the beautiful part about Lent. When I say we get out of the rut we may be in, or even if we haven't been backsliding or something, we, we get uh, additional momentum. We don't come up with it ourselves. This is something we turn to God to receive. Now, I've got a, a new car now. For the first time in a while, I don't have four-wheel drive. Glad that I didn't have this one when it was, everything was just one sheet of ice. But I remember the last time I had a car that wasn't four-wheel drive. It was rear-wheel drive. I remember it was a long time ago. I put Calvin Buckle in his little car seat. Uh, the car was on the road, on the street in front of our house. I got in, turned the key, started hitting the gas. Back wheels start spinning. The longer I spin it, the more I push the gas the more the friction, right, melts the ice a little and makes these perfectly tire-shaped, slippery little grooves. And I was getting so upset. Well, the, the sin that I need to continually watch myself for and repent of and, and ask God to help me overcome is, is losing my temper. Not usually with people, well, unless they're in other cars, but, but <laughs> certainly this came out. And I was mad. And I'm kind of, oh, what am I going to do about this? And then I look up, and there's a guy in one of these giant, like, S10 pickups pulling up behind me. And he sticks his head out the window. He's like, hey, you need a... He didn't have a southern accent just because he was in a pickup. I was <laughs> sorry. He's like, you need a push? I said, I love that. Very carefully, not to scratch the paint, gets up behind me. Just one second. He probably burned a half a penny's worth of gas, if that. And I was out. And I was on my way. I found traction. This is, this is what happens in Lent. We look to God to help us to find traction. Mimi read us that passage about being stuck in the, the mud and mire, in the slimy pit, I, the miry pit. I, that, that image is one of the most evocative to me in all of Scripture. Because, I mean, I, I could put myself there and think of what it would feel like trying to climb out. But there's no friction. There's no getting out. The only way to get out is for someone to reach down and grab you and pull you out. And this is what we look to God to do. And that's not just in our initial salvation. 
I don't know about you guys anyway, but I find I wind up in that slimy pit regularly. And the longer I try to get out myself, the worse things get. And the sooner I turn to, to Christ, the better things are. And when we fall back in and we start saying, no, 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 I got it, I can do this. I'm a mature Christian. I shouldn't need to ask for help all the time. The more we do it, the less we, we progress down the King's Highway. On Ash Wednesday, we think about our own mortality. We think about the fact that we came from dust and we return to dust. But that wasn't the plan from the beginning. We, we come from the dust of the earth, but the plan was for us then just to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We mourn then what was lost, but it's not lost forever. Whenever we think about sin, it eventually brings us to thinking about the cross. Because the wages of sin is death. And on that cross, the Son of God became sin. And in his death, won our salvation. And the cross, is, it's good news. It's always good news. It's good news on Easter morning. It's good news on Good Friday. It's good news on Ash Wednesday. It's always good news. But today we take time to remember the cost at which that good news was applied to us. Since I'm quoting everybody at length, I got to quote Spurgeon. Wouldn't be right not to. He said, Child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you. When we are, when we are in the midst of our uh, Lenten journey and, and we think in these terms uh, that, that Mimi was reading for us, that our, our sins are, are just overwhelming. And we're tempted again and again to, to say that our iniquities, like in verse 12, have overtaken us, evils encompassing us beyond number, that we cannot see, that, that our, our iniquities are more than the hairs on our head, and our hearts will fail us. But when our hearts fail us, because we are stuck in the miry pit, remember that Christ will not fail us. Child of God, you cost Christ too much for him to forget you. When something costs a lot, you tend not to forget about it, right? I mean, I, I have lost more pairs of sunglasses than everyone here combined. That's the thing I do. I go through roughly, I don't know, 16 pair a year. That might be a little high, but not much. And then I lose them. I don't know where they go. They disappear, and I go into the gas station, and I spin the thing and find the least ugly pair, look more like a dad every year, and, then, and walk out. And, and, and I know I'm just going to lose them, so I can buy cheap ones so that it doesn't matter. I, I lose tie chains, tie tacks all the time. I, I've lost full sets of keys, car keys, house keys, all the keys on more than one occasion and had to rebuild from scratch. But you know what? In, in 18 years now of being married, I haven't lost my wedding ring. I still have my wedding ring. A big reason is for many of those years, my finger was too fat and I couldn't take it off. But think about this. It's made of gold. There's that. I don't remember how much it cost, but I hope it was somewhat expensive. But more than that, what it cost is what it means. And what it means means that I am not going to forget it and lose it and say, what, what, did I have that? And you and I, what we cost and what we mean to Christ means that he will not forget us. And it's good for us to think about that kind of hope. It's good that we instinctively rush to the comfort of the cross. That when, when guilt or shame come to us, that's our knee-jerk, instant muscle memory reflex. To go to the cross, to look to the wounds of Christ and, and what he did in our stead and find comfort there. 
that's good. In fact, tonight, when you get home, ashes are still on your head. If you start to feel like your iniquities are greater and more than the hairs on your head and your heart's failing you, don't wait. Do not pass go. Go immediately to the cross and find comfort. That's what a Christian ought to do. But on Ash Wednesday, when we've gathered for this particular purpose, when we've come together to lament and worship in a minor key and yet without music, we sit intentionally in that sorrowful place, lamenting that our Lord had to suffer, that the curse came at all and death from the curse because sin entered the world. That even after we've been washed in the blood of Jesus and passed from death to life, we still sin. We still choose death instead of life. We still choose rebellion instead of obedience. Ashes instead of gold. That we put quotes around our sin and rename our flesh Teddy thinking that we can so easily change its nature into something not to be fought and mortified, but to be coddled and managed. And so as we put on ashes and sort of metaphorically put on sackcloth and begin our Lent with a time of repentance, of acknowledging our sin, remember this is the beginning of the journey. This is, this is the starting line. The ending line looks like this. He's risen. He's risen indeed. But the starting line is to remember we've come from dust. And because of our sin to dust, we will return. We have grieved a holy God, a God who is so full of love that, that he even came and died. But that death, again, that suffering and death of Christ was because of our sin. This moves us to repentance. And maybe is enough of a push to get you again finding traction and moving at a greater speed toward Christ, becoming more like him in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. But it's a beginning. Follow it through. Follow it through through meditation on on scripture. Read passages that you don't always read. Follow it through by denying yourself in different ways. Many people give something up for Lent. You don't have to do that. Uh, you, you might simply say, Lord, I'm going to start each day asking you to help me see one person that I can proclaim the gospel to or one person who's forgotten and marginalized that I can show love to. Go to him in the area that you need some help and ask him to give you a push. I promise, like the guy in the pickup who had no accent at all, He will do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to receive the imposition of ashes as a a symbol, a sign and a a remembrance of our sin that, that marks us, Lord, we thank you that ashes are not a permanent tattoo marking us as sinners, but rather fade away. And as they fade away, may we remember that our sins have been washed away and that we do stand clean before you. And yet, Lord, let us not then use that as license, but let us remember our license has expired. Let us not say we'll go on sinning that grace may increase, but but may we even stand ashamed of the things we did previously, as St. Paul says, not wallowing in shame, but acknowledging that we have sinned, we have grieved you, and Lord, letting that motivate us 
to move ever more quickly in your direction, making progress on the King's Highway. We thank you that we have the privilege of repenting, of coming to your throne guilty and knowing that you will receive us. Lord, we think of Queen Esther as she feared for her very life approaching a king unbidden, and and we think of how you are infinitely more majestic and righteous and holy than her husband, King Xerxes, and yet we know that we can come to you and you will receive us. We can come to you even filthy, and we know that as we read about in the book of Zechariah, you will remove the filthy garments from us and dress us in clean white linen, place a clean turban on our heads and present us not only clean but righteous, not only without sin but with the positive righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. As we leave this place with broken hearts, we pray that you would bind them up with this gospel truth. In your holy name we pray. Amen.